Please be taking out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Malachi in Malachi chapter 2. Malachi, the second chapter, is where we will be looking at the first passage of Scripture in just a moment. As we consider this morning, we need to be seeking to pursue a covenant marriage relationship. And in Malachi, this is perhaps the closest uh, passage of Scripture that would indicate that marriage is indeed that covenant relationship where Malachi is a prophet of God and he is speaking to the people, condemning them for their behavior and their sin. And he says in verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. As Malachi is offering a very stern warning to the people of Israel of immoral and proper behavior, as he is speaking as a spokesman for God, the mouthpiece of the Lord, he says, God hates divorce. As we looked at this morning in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor. And I think if we are going to truly honor marriage, then we have to adopt the perspective that God has on the marriage relationship and about divorce as well. We have to accept God's view of marriage and understand the boundaries that He has placed upon it. We have to understand that homosexuality does not fit the biblical standard of marriage. We have to understand that adultery and fornication have no place in this. Neither does polygamy. And all these things are contrary to what God wants. And as we have considered the significance of the marriage relationship as a covenant relationship, now we want to look at the destruction of that covenant relationship in what we would call divorce. In the United States, these are pretty uh, current numbers, I believe, if everything is... uh, updated uh, by the end of last year, then these numbers would stand. And current divorce rates in the United States, 2.3 persons per 1,000 get a divorce. And that rate has declined since 1990. Uh, Between 1960 and 1990, the divorce rate only increased, but since 1990, Divorce rates are decreasing. They are going down. Now, before you get too excited about that, what that means is that fewer people are actually getting married. And and so with the increase of cohabitation and uh, those kinds of things, the rate is staying really about the same as, uh, as what we would be concerned about amongst people who are married. Divorces amongst people aged 50 and older are actually rising, interestingly. Uh, Fewer couples choose to marry than before 1990. 
And the divorce rate in the United States is the third highest in the world. And so uh, it is something to be concerned about here. But what does the Bible say about all of this? What is God's perspective on divorce? Well, we just read it here in Malachi 2 and verse 16. God hates it. And we could probably just leave it there and sermon is yours. But you know me well enough to say he can't preach that short. <laughs> and so we want to consider for a little bit what does the Bible say as a whole about this. Now you, now you get scared because he's going to take the whole Bible and look at divorce. No, not quite. But what we see is that God does hate divorce. And that if, we need, if we're going to adopt God's perspective on divorce, we, we have to understand how God feels about it and what Jesus has said about it as well. And I think we need to take divorce as seriously as God does. And we should hate divorce just as much as the Lord does. And whatever God's thoughts are about it should become my thoughts and our thoughts. I think that is one thing that I appreciate about, especially about the elders, is they sit down to meet with someone to talk about if they're going to become a member here. They ask them about their marriage and they talk about those kinds of things because it's important. It's nothing to necessarily be ashamed of. They're not trying to dig and pry or anything like that, but it's important because the Bible talks about this. And it's something that is worth our attention because if Jesus would talk about it and offer some warnings about it, and if this is something that God hates, then it should be something that is very minimal amongst God's people, you would think. And just generally speaking, what we need to understand is that divorce is sin. Now there's going to be an exception to that. We'll talk about that, trust me. But generally speaking, divorce is sin. That's what the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes. Is that if someone is divorced and then they remarry, they are living in adultery. Uh, again, we'll add the caveat in a little bit. We'll talk about the exception. We'll talk about the one thing that Jesus does say that would allow divorce. But in broad and general terms, God hates divorce and it is a sin. And what we see is that if one or two divorced people who do not have a scriptural reason for their divorce, if they marry or they remarry, they commit adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew the 19th chapter, as that, the passage that we all probably turn to when we talk about divorce and marriage and all these, all these matters, in Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. In Luke chapter 16, in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke the 16th chapter, and in verse 18, Luke gives probably the, the least amount of detail surrounding the whole statement. But he says in verse 18, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And what you see here is that what Jesus says in Luke's account 
is that if you divorce your wife and you marry another, then you're committing adultery. But even if you perhaps have never been married before and you marry someone who is divorced, you commit adultery. What the Bible is trying to get us to see is that whenever divorce occurs is that it creates a whole mess of problems, doesn't it? And that it leads to adultery. And that you have in Matthew chapter 19, when he says that you, if, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, and is present tense, commits at that present time, as long as that second marriage lasts, that is living in adultery. And same as in Luke chapter 16 and in verse 18. In all the passages, it's used in the present tense. And what we need to recognize is that divorce is a very selfish act. It's a very selfish thing to seek out. Now, if you would, turn with you to Matthew chapter 5. I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says here as He is offering warnings about adultery and lust in your heart. And then He turns to the issue of divorce. In Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 31, Jesus says here, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oh, you may think, man, it's kind of harsh to say that divorce is a selfish act. Well, notice... I hear sometimes people may say, well, when they're getting dissatisfied with their marriage, they, they aren't happy anymore. They find that they are not enjoying the marriage relationship any longer. And maybe there's some conflict there and they just say, you know, I think I'm going to divorce my husband. I'm just going to divorce him. I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. I think I will just, I'll remain single the rest of my life, but I know that this is wrong. And something has perhaps never quite settled just right with me about that kind of attitude. I think it treats marriage very flippantly as well as divorce. It doesn't take it very seriously in the first place. And then I, I perhaps always doubt that, and not calling them a liar or doubting their sincerity necessarily, but I think reality would eventually set in that they would desire to marry, they would desire to have that companionship, they would want to have a, a family or something like that. And so once the circumstances begin to change a little bit, then I think their decision making will change along the way. And then I think, secondly, they're not really truly thinking about the pain and the destruction that divorce will bring. They don't think about that. They don't think about what their parents might actually be going through or what their children might see. They don't think about how this might affect a whole host of other people. They're not thinking about another thing either. They're not thinking about their mate. 
In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, I want you to see what Jesus says here. And it's different than what He says in Matthew 19. It's got a slightly different flavor, if you will. He says in, in verse 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Do you see that? That divorcing a wife for a reason other than fornication, it makes her commit adultery. Well, how is that? I've always wondered that. I think it's that Jesus is saying that you're going to put her in an extremely volatile situation. You're going to put temptation at her doorstep. And you're going to lead her down a path of sin. And you're going to be a contributor to it. By divorcing your wife without cause, without a reason, you're going to be perpetuating an adulterous lifestyle where the divorce where they divorce their spouse, and that spouse goes on and marries someone else. It's just going to perpetuate this divorce attitude and the sinful attitude that's behind it. I think that has to help us understand that it's not just the divorce that is sinful. It's the subsequent actions that would follow from that. And there's going to be fallout. There's going to be other sin that takes place after this action. And the subsequent marriages that result from a divorce are adulterous. All because someone is only thinking about themselves. And they don't take the time and the effort to fix the problems that might be in their marriage. They don't take the time to address them very seriously as they ought to. If we're going to have God's perspective on this, we have to see what and understand what Jesus teaches us about the seriousness of such a thing. And Jesus is very clear in His teachings on marriage and how permanent it is. We looked at Mark's account this morning a little bit in Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10 and in verse 9, where after he has addressed this whole situation about uh, the hardness of their hearts and Moses allowing divorce under the old covenant, and then he goes back to the very beginning, and we'll have some more to say about that in a little bit. But what he does is that he says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Period. Full stop. End of story. There's nothing there about remarriage. There's not even an exception clause here in Mark's account. You might be thinking, well, that seems kind of harsh. I think what we're supposed to see is that divorce, and even for reasons for adultery, that's truly an exception. The rule is marriage is for life. And just speaking in broad, general terms, God condemns divorce. But there is one exception that Jesus offers. 
Found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, and in Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 9. When one spouse has been unfaithful to the covenant and the vows and the oath that they made before God, Jesus is very clear on the subject of divorce. And he permits divorce for only one reason. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus allows an exception to his rule of no divorce. In Matthew 5.32, the New American Standard says that it's for reason of unchastity. When fornication occurs, when one spouse would be unfaithful to the covenant, when there is unfaithfulness that is brought in and entered into the marriage relationship, Jesus allows divorce. But what is still interesting is that divorce is never commanded either. You go back to the book of Hosea. And in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, it's really a remarkable story that occurs in Hosea. Hosea is a prophet of God. And in Hosea chapter 1, the Lord speaks to Hosea and He tells him to go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. And there's some debate about what, what exactly God meant there. I think in the same, no matter what, you end up at the same place. But some people take the view that Hosea was to try to find, some, find a wife, marry her, love her, all, the, all that as we kind of would like to picture that maybe in a, a traditional courtship kind of way. And then later on down the road, she becomes unfaithful and becomes a harlot and has children of harlotry. And how does, that, how does Hosea deal with that? That's one option. The other option is that he's supposed to go downtown and find someone who is living a life of harlotry and he just says, hey, I pick you and I'm going to marry you. And they're going to create a family together. I don't know exactly where I fall in there, which camp. But what is amazing is that he does this. And they have children together. And certainly by the time you get to the second and third child, you're beginning to wonder, like just because of the names of the children, that we're not exactly sure who the father is. And all of this is demonstrating Israel's unfaithfulness to Jehovah. But what you have in this story is by the time you get to chapter 3, it's a very short chapter, just a few verses, but... By the time this is, we get here, Gomer, Hosea's wife, has left. She's kind of been kicked out. She's left. She's, fi- she's found someone else to live with. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, 
The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Notice what he does. He goes and he buys her back. Here's this wife who has been very unfaithful and leaves. And now Hosea is buying her back to come live with him. And he says in verse 3, Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. He kind of says, Look, honey, you're going to be my wife. And I'm not going to fool around with this anymore. You're going to do what you ought to do. Part of me likes that option a little bit better than just the divorce route. Or you kind of have to say, this is what you're going to do. Forgiveness is an option. And it's the one that God offers continually, isn't it? Because what this is all really a picture of in the book of Hosea is a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness towards God. How many times does God forgive Israel? And how many times does He forgive us when we have been unfaithful to Him? Forgiveness is an option. And then when you can say, no, let's do what's right. You're going to be faithful to me. And I expect that. But it's impressive that He would go and He would actually pay for her to come back home to be His wife so so many interesting things with that but of course what all this brings up several questions especially whenever you might be around brethren and we might think and ask about well what do you believe about marriage divorce remarriage those kinds of things it brings up a lot of questions and there are people who seek to try to look for other scriptural reasons for divorce and remarriage. And saying, Sean, you know, that's a very narrow view, you know, that only for the reason of sexual immorality and fornication. You know, there's a lot of other things that might lead to a deterioration of a marriage, and you know, the just best thing might be to divorce. Well. I want to try to address a couple of, we don't have time to address all, all suggestions, uh, to which I expect a, a nice amen at the end, you know. Thankful that you don't have, have that time. But there are a couple of predominant questions I want to really focus in on this evening that have been suggested by brethren in defense of perhaps another reason for divorce or at least allowing a looser interpretation the first thing is a phrase this in the form of a question is an alien sinner held accountable to jesus's words and teachings about divorce one brother in christ in a book that he wrote he said those who had not obeyed the gospel were not under law to christ he continues on, therefore all mankind are under Christ's jurisdiction, 
but only those who submit to the terms of the gospel are under his law of the new covenant. I find that to be really, really convenient. <laughs> that only the things that, only the people who have become Christians now, you're the only ones who have to obey what Christ has said. Uh, seems like it, I might be better off not being a Christian then, right? At least then my disobedience is excused. But what is, again, very fascinating about this argument is that if you're not a Christian, you're not under the law of Christ. He actually goes back and argues that you're under the moral law, beginning all the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That you're under a moral law, not the law of Christ. And I find that, again, to be very problematic because of what Jesus says. In Matthew's account and in Mark's account, but we'll go to Mark. Notice what Jesus actually says. He doesn't institute a new law, does he? In Mark chapter 10 and in verse 2, some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Where does Jesus go for his whole argument here about divorce and marriage? He goes back to the beginning, to the moral law, if you will. He doesn't offer some new interpretation. He just says you need to be reading your Bibles the way that God intended for you to. And then in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 5, another thing that I think is problematic to this whole idea that, that someone who's not a Christian is somehow exempt from Jesus' teachings on this. Well, in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 32, notice what Jesus says. He says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a, woman, a divorced woman commits adultery. He says, everyone, whoever. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 16, in Luke chapter 16 and in verse 18, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Jesus isn't making an, an exception to who has to follow this rule. He says everyone's bound by this. And so I think what this position would do it misses the whole thrust of what Jesus is really trying to say because Jesus demands that everyone follow what he says and what is so important for us to recognize is that yes becoming a Christian being baptized it washes away one's sins but what is interesting about baptism, while it washes away your sins, it doesn't turn sinful behavior into righteous behavior. 
does it? It doesn't, if you were a liar and you got into the water and you were baptized and you came up lying, it doesn't now mean you're telling the truth, even if you keep saying the same lie. (laughs) And we have to understand that if someone lives in sin, they must repent. They must stop engaging in the sin. Baptism washes away sin. It does not wash away marriages. If someone has divorced and remarried and lives in adultery, they and the person they are married to live in adultery. Present tense. And if they want to be pleasing to the Lord, they must repent of the sin of adultery and seek God's forgiveness and they must separate themselves. In the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, the end of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah, they sought in many ways to bring Israel back into the promised land after they had been in captivity to establish temple worship and all these things. They're trying to bring uh, Israel back to serving God in the way that they were supposed to. And Israel, they kind of fall right back into the same old habits. They come back into the land and they begin to marry those who are of the Canaanites. And it's just going to repeat everything else that you just read in the Old Testament from the book of Joshua and onward up to this point. It's just going to go right back down the same path. And they're like, no, we can't have this. God is saying we can't have this. And by the time you get to chapter 10, and in verse 10, Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord Lord God of your fathers, and do His will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. And you know how incredibly hard that must have been? You know, somebody may say, you know, Sean, I, I, I see what you're saying. But, you know, it gets so complicated. You know, what if they have kids? And, you know, they've been together for a while and they're so happy. And, but they find out that they're living in adultery and now you're saying they have to separate? Notice verse 44, the very last verse of this chapter. All these had married foreign wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Children. Yeah, I know it, it's got to be incredibly hard and difficult. Find a way to make it work. You know, the beauty of it is if someone's trying to do what's right and coming back to the Lord and fixing some things in their life, they're not going to have to do it alone. They're going to have a community of people in the Lord's church that's going to help and encourage and support. They're not going to have to be facing all of this alone. But if we are living in adultery, 
And you divorced for a reason that was not adultery or sexual immorality. You need to separate. We'll turn to another passage in a moment that helps us see what options are for someone. What we need to recognize is that remaining unmarried, it's not a penance or a punishment or something like that. It's the consequence of some choices that we've made. Which leads us to our second question. And this is the one that I think is far more troubling to me because it's a little bit more subtle. And if you know when you're dealing with something a little more subtle, it's a little harder to detect the error. And I find that to be a lot more dangerous. But as, again, a phrase this in the form of a question. Does Paul provide a second reason for divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 15? So if you would turn over to 1 Corinthians the 7th chapter with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Corinthians, they have written to Paul about some matters that we have here that Paul seems to be addressing in this epistle. And he's writing to them about marriage. And if you would begin with me at verse 10, he says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. And so what I want you to see here is that Paul is just going back to what Jesus says. He says, this isn't what I have said, this is what the Lord has said. And that a wife should not leave her husband. And I think sometimes we try to say this word leave. It's going to come up in verse 10, verse 11, and verse 15. That it's just, you know, I need a separation for a little bit. I don't think that's what that means. I don't think that's how Paul uses it here. Because it's used, the same Greek word is used in Matthew chapter 19 in verse 6. And in Mark chapter 10 in verse 9. When he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That word separate, it's the same Greek word in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10, 11, and 15 for leave. I think clearly it has reference to divorce. So what I want you to see is that what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 is clearly what Jesus has said. And he goes on in verse 11, but if she does leave, and is divorce, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. And so he adds as an addendum to this that if she decides to divorce, she has to remain unmarried or she has to be reconciled to her husband. Those are the options. And so you come to verse 12, but to the rest I say, and I think the rest there is just those who are unmarried. Maybe for various reasons, but in verse 10 he says, but to the married, so verse 12, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, 
he must not divorce her. I think what Paul is going to say is, all right, now here are some very particular situations that Jesus just did not address. But come up in the nature of a local church and the work that we have, and here are some other questions that you have, and here's what I'm going to say. And he's saying, he admits that these aren't the words of Jesus verbatim, but Paul is an inspired apostle And he says exactly what Jesus has said, doesn't he? He says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. He's following the same principle that Jesus has said and instituted. So he says in verse 13, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. So he's addressing these situations where an unbeliever is married to a believer, where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. And the principle is precisely the same. Don't divorce. Don't seek a divorce. Don't try to put someone away. And so you continue on in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So it's obvious in the context that Paul is continuing to address the relationship between an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse. And if the unbelieving spouse says, look, I can't sign up for this whole Christianity thing, and I think there's probably some persecution that's beginning to take place here. Because Paul talks about it later on in the chapter in verse 25 about a great distress, or present distress in verse 26, rather. I think there's something that's going on there. And if the unbeliever is like, look, I can't, I'm not signing up for this whole thing. I can't be married to you. I don't think Paul's saying, well, just let them go and you can be free of this and it, it, as if everything is going to be okay. That you're not under the marriage bond anymore. And that you're then free to remarry in some way. I don't think that's what Paul is involving here at all. But I think he is saying if the unbelieving spouse just wants to divorce you, your loyalty is to God, not to that spouse. You're not having to go follow that spouse into unfaithfulness. In verse 15, when he says what many people argue is that the brother or the sister is not under bondage, that that's referring to the marriage bond. I don't think that's what he's talking about there. Because Paul does talk about the marriage bond later on in this chapter. In verse 39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, which is also Romans chapter 7 and verse 2. But in both of those passages, it's a different word. And he uses there in verse 15. And so what I think Paul is saying, look, if this happens to you, Christian, and your, your unbelieving spouse leaves you, 
you have to remain unmarried or be reconciled. That may not be an option. So you don't have the permission to go remarry. But in verse 11, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That you, just because an unbeliever may leave you and desert you, you have to remain unmarried or be reconciled. There is nothing in 1 Corinthians 7.15 in my estimation that I can see that would permit the believer who is deserted to just up and remarry. Because what Paul is doing is emphasizing what Jesus has said. He says, do not divorce. And if for some reason your spouse divorces you, you have to remain unmarried or be reconciled to them. So who can marry or remarry? I think one thing we need to remember at the outset of this discussion in in this particular question, we need to remember that marriage is a liberty. It's a freedom that we have. It's not a right or a requirement. In Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 10, after Jesus has said all this about marriage and divorce and things like that, the disciples said to him, and maybe some of the reactions that many of us may have if we heard this, but the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. I don't think they were too far off there. Not that I'm saying you need to not get married, but what I think we need to see is that they're recognizing the seriousness of what Jesus has just said. They're saying if it's this serious, then we need to be very careful before we decide that we're going to get married. I think a lot of people need to think more like that before they get married. But then he says in verse 11, But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Jesus is saying, Not everyone is fit to be married. There are some people who, he talks about eunuchs a lot right there, maybe thinking, what does this have to do with anything? Saying there are people who need to be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be married and go to heaven. If you can't follow what Jesus is saying, maybe you don't need to be married. We need to remember that at the outset. But then we can see that a widow or a widower is permitted to marry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 39, when, when Paul is writing about the, the marriage bond here, he says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, 
She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. She is permitted and free to marry again. Because her, the spouse that she was bound to, her husband, has passed away. That bond has been dissolved. And of course, an unmarried or single person may marry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7... At the very beginning of that chapter, in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. And he continues on in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul says, if you are single and you want that desire, you want to fulfill that desire in a godly way, marry. Marry someone. You have the authority to do such. And then in Matthew chapter 19, a person who divorced their spouse for sexual immorality and for fornication, they may remarry. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so, as he applies this exception clause, it applies to the person who might put their spouse away for adultery. And so if you choose to remarry, you do not commit adultery. That's an exceptional case here. It's an exception to this rule that Jesus is establishing. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, the remarriage for someone who put their spouse away for adultery is acceptable because of that exception clause. Because they're no longer in a covenant marriage relationship. That marriage union was dissolved. They are unmarried and they are free to marry someone who also has the liberty and the freedom and the right to marry. But what I find so interesting as you look at Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 16, you see what Jesus has said about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what Paul says, and that he's just reinforcing what Jesus has already said. What I find to be so interesting is that what is continually emphasized is the wrongness of divorce, the danger of divorce. And I think that ought to be what is reinforced in our minds as we think about the seriousness of how much God hates divorce. Now before we divorce a spouse, we better be sure that we're making the right choice. We better be sure about it. Because it is a very serious action and choice that we might make. God hates divorce. I think it's very clear in Scripture. 
And Jesus' teachings just reinforce that message. What Jesus did say, He permitted divorce for only one reason, for sexual immorality from a spouse that was unfaithful to the covenant. No matter what others may have said, the Bible is very clear. Jesus and Paul were both in agreement. Divorce is wrong. It should not occur. Marriage is too beautiful of a relationship to end. We need to honor marriage in the way that God wants it to be honored. Through faithfulness to God and through faithfulness to our spouse. This evening, I know this lesson hasn't been designed to teach someone what they must do to become a child of God. But if you're here tonight and you've not submitted to following Christ, we want to encourage you to come bring Christ your life. Give Him everything that you have. Surrender it all. Believe in Christ. Be obedient in baptism. Have your sins washed away. And if you have done that, but you've not been living faithfully, come back. Come back to the Lord. He wants you. If you are subject to the invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?